0: Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Rich. It's great to uh, see you today. I am the uh, Care and the Connections Pastor here at Grace. Just recently kind of transitioned roles uh, into that. But uh, Pastor Jim is—he uh, is on vacation right now. Uh, he and his wife, Anne, were celebrating their 25th anniversary this past week, and so they got to take a nice little trip and celebrate that and everything. So—but uh, while he's gone, that gives me the opportunity to get to share with you. And so I'm really thankful for uh, the opportunity to be able to do that, to share with you here in the main, those of you that are over in the link as well. well uh, there are as a speaker, there are three home run topics, uh, three topics that, you know, whenever I speak to people, I know that they're always going to keep somebody's attention. And so uh, those topics are this, uh, sex, sex is one of those topics, people just want to know about that. And so that's always a home run topic when you talk about sex. Uh, The end times is another one. People are just kind of fascinated by the end times. And so so they just want to hear about that and learn about that and everything. And then the other topic is sex in the end times. And that's always a great topic, you know, to learn about. I think Pastor Jim will be covering that next week. And so uh, um, you can let him know that. He probably doesn't know that right now. But anyway, but, uh, so that's what, over the past few weeks, if you've been with us, you know that we have been uh, talking about the end and kind of just looking at uh, just all the different things that are going to be happening. And so what I want to do is just kind of fill us in real quick. Uh, you uh, probably, uh, if you've been here a few weeks, you may recognize this timeline. But we're just going to go ahead and draw the timeline, and then just kind of fill you in on, on where we've been the past couple weeks, and then uh, where we're going to be at today. And so uh, we're going to just draw a cross right here, and that cross is going to be, we'll just say, Jesus, uh, crucifixion, I'm probably spelling that wrong, and resurrection, probably spelling that wrong. Uh, but anyway, there you go. Uh, so that's Jesus. Everything that happens before the cross— would be like Old Testament stuff. So everything that happened in the Old Testament, and everything. And so then we have the cross. And so that's Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus on the earth dies on the cross and then is raised up into heaven. And so that's, we've seen that stuff. And then what we have is something called uh, us. This is the church age. So we are right here. So everything that happens after the cross up until something we looked at called the rapture. And so... We have Old Testament. Jesus comes. Jesus is born. He dies on the cross. He's raised from the dead. He's taken up into heaven. After that, we have the Church Age. That's what we're in right now. That's us. So we are currently in what's something called the Church Age. But there's going to be an event that happens called the Rapture. And the Rapture, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is whenever all the followers of Jesus are are just miraculously taken up into heaven. Jesus just calls us up to him, and we just all disappear. And we're doing a lot of review right here encourage you, if you haven't uh, been able to listen to the sermons or anything like that, go to gracecommunitydeskchurch.com, follow up on the sermons, kind of find out where we've been. But uh, this is just a little bit of a catch up. So the rapture happens. Then after the rapture, we kind of talked about, I'll just do a little dividing line right here. We kind of talked about something called the uh, tribulation. And that's a big word, so I'm going to abbreviate. So uh, that's the uh, tribulation right there. And so what Pastor Jim has been doing the uh, past few weeks is he has kind of been looking at the first part of the tribulation, which has been three and a half years. And so if you remember what we've been looking at over the past uh, weeks and everything, those first three and a half years, we'll just say are Crazy. Uh, So, the first three and a half years of the tribulation are pretty crazy. And so we've been seeing all sorts of just wild stuff and destruction and just crazy things that are happening. And then there is, uh, the, the tribulation is a total of seven years. So we have three and a half years, and then we have the last part of the tribulation, which is going to be three and a half years. And we'll just describe that as being... Uh, because what you're going to see over the next few weeks is that it gets even worse. So everything that we've seen is just, is just horrible, and then second half of tribulation just gets even worse. And then after that, we have uh, something called the thousand-year reign, um, and then uh, the new heaven, and the uh, new earth. And that is basically eternity. So that is what is going to happen. And so what we're going to look, that's kind of been the timeline that we've been looking at, and we've kind of got up to this point. What we're going to look at today is right here. We are right in the middle of the tribulation. And so that is what we're going to look at today in Revelation chapter 11 and Revelation chapter 12, where we are right smack in the middle of the of the seven-year tribulation. And so what I think is just really cool is this. I honestly believe that God just supernaturally and strategically placed everything that we're going to hear today, he placed it right in the middle of all sorts of crazy. Because sometimes all we need to know in life is that we just need to know that the battle's been won. Sometimes that's the greatest reassurance that we can have. When life is crazy, when things seem to be falling apart, sometimes the best thing that we could hear is that the battle has been won. And that is something that we are going to see today. That's something that we're going to hear today in the midst of all sorts of craziness. Right in the middle of the tribulation. And not only right in the middle of the tribulation, but also right in the middle of the book of Revelation. We are just given a break. We're given a break from all the craziness, and we see that the battle is won. And so I just want to kind of just give you a little bit of a heads up today that uh, what we're going to be doing today as we go on our journey— is uh, we're going to, you know, we only have a certain amount of time, and there's a lot of stuff that we need to cover. So as we're on our journey today, we're going to hike through some things where I'm just going to, you know, just blaze through them. If you want to study them on your own, you can go ahead and do that. I'll give you scripture references, Bible references, all that sort of stuff, and you can take a look at those things. And then there are going to be other things that uh, we're going to camp at because um, we're just going to really focus on those and just try to learn from those. And so I just wanted to give you that heads up. Then I also wanted to give you another, another heads up. I may get a little excited today. Uh, Because this is powerful stuff uh, that we're going to learn and stuff that tells us that ultimately we win. And I think that is God just strategically placed that for us today just so we had that reassurance. And so turn to uh, Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. And uh, we're going to look at verse 15. And now just, just again, just a reminder, you know, we've been looking at these things called the seal judgments, and we've been looking at these things called the trumpet judgments. And again, uh, go online, watch the sermons, find out all about that stuff so you can catch up if you haven't been able to be with us. But um, what, what I want you to know is that last week, Pastor Jim looked at six of the seven trumpet judgments. And with all of those judgments, there was some type of disaster that that struck the earth. Some type of horrific judgment that that God called down upon the earth. And so that was what was happening last week as we saw six of those. Today, we come to the seventh one. But what we're going to see is that instead of some horrific disaster striking the earth, there is a heavenly declaration that is made and uh, this is pretty powerful stuff so go ahead and uh, look at Revelation chapter 11 starting at verse 15 it says this says the angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. And then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, And an earthquake and a severe hailstorm. And so a couple of things that I want to try to point out to you. The book of Revelation is filled with imagery. It's filled with signs. And it can make it just a little confusing to try to figure out what some of these things are. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing, uh, you know, that imagery come into place uh, right here. And the first term that you may not recognize as we were reading Revelation chapter 11 is that term, 24 elders. Who in the world are the 24 old people? You know, the 24 elders, who are those people? Well, they are mentioned several times in the book of Revelation. But the first time that they're mentioned is in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4. And I'm going to just go ahead and read that to you. This is the first time the 24 elders are mentioned. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. So surrounding the throne of God. Were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. This is the first time they're mentioned. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, again, who who are those twenty-four elders? Well, I, I believe that as we as we kind of study it and as we kind of look at it, that that term twenty-four elders represents the church. It represents those followers of Jesus who, who have either died in are in, in heaven or who were alive at the time of the rapture and were raptured up into heaven. And so I believe that the 24 elders represents the church. Now, some people disagree and some people believe, you know, the other big argument is that some people say that they're angels. Um, I, I just don't believe that. And here's just a, a few reasons why I don't believe they're angels, but rather I believe that it represents the church, that it represents followers of Jesus Christ. And the first reason I believe that is because The elders are pictured as as to be seated on thrones. And seated on thrones is a picture of ruling with Jesus, of reigning with Jesus. And all throughout the Bible, the church is pictured as going to be reigning or ruling with Jesus Christ. And you can see that in Luke chapter 22, verse 30, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, and 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. The second reason that I believe that it represents the church is because the term elder in the Bible is never used of angels. Never. It's always used of people. Third reason that I believe that it represents the church is even though when you're reading the Bible, you do see that angels are dressed in white, in the Bible but what i believe that is is that being dressed in white garments is more commonly referred to as the clothing of followers of Jesus Christ especially in the book of Revelation and you can see that in Revelation chapter 3 verse 5 and chapter 19 verse 8 where followers of Jesus are described as being dressed all in white And then finally, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, we're told that that those elders, that they wore a crown of gold. And in the Bible, when you read the Bible, crowns are never given to angels. Crowns are always given to followers of Jesus. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 9, 25, 2 Timothy 4, 8, James chapter 1, verse 12. And so something that I I think is really important, the crown— in, in the Bible, is given to followers of Jesus as a reward. It's, it's, it's kind of this, this symbol of, of, of God just saying, good job. Well done, good and faithful servant. Here is your reward. Here is a crown for you. And something that I think is just really cool is that the original Greek word for crown that's used there in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, is, is the Greek word stephanos. And, and, and when that word is used in the Bible, it's not used in the sense of a crown like, like a king or a queen would wear, but it's used in the sense of a victor's crown it's used in the sense of somebody wins a competition and they are given the prize. They are given the reward. And so it's the idea of, you know, today if somebody wins an event in the Olympics, they're given a medal and they wear that medal around their neck. That's their gold medal. They have won the competition. But back then, if somebody won an event in a competition, they were given a Stephanos. They were given a crown, a wreath, something that they placed upon their head that symbolized that they were the winner. It is a Victor's crown. And so, what I think is really cool is that the church, followers of Jesus Christ, were winners. We are the ones that are wearing the victor's crown. We are the ones that are described as having won the prize. And so, I don't know how you're feeling today. You may not feel like a winner, you may feel like a loser, but what I want you to know is God never doubts your victory. Even in the future, he pictures you with that crown, with that victor's crown that is upon your head. You are the winner as a follower of Jesus Christ. I just thought that was really cool as I was looking at that. But that is also really important because we're going to touch on that a little bit later as well. So just keep that word in mind. So here we have in Revelation chapter 11, we have the church. We have followers of Jesus falling on their faces in heaven and declaring that the kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. And this is what, what we're told they said in, in chapter 11 is we give thanks to you because you have taken your great power And you have begun to reign. This is a declaration in heaven. Right at the midpoint of the tribulation. Right in the midst of all of the craziness that is going on. This is a declaration in heaven that the enemy's right. That Satan's right to any authority that he he has on earth is now being stripped from him. His authority is being taken from him. And so I I don't know if you realize this, this may come as a surprise to you, but, but the Bible does speak of Satan as having a measure of authority in this world. The Bible speaks of him as having a measure of authority in this world. First John chapter 5, verse 19 tells us that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 calls Satan the ruler of the kingdom of the air. John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus called Satan the prince of this world. And so this is something that I, I, I don't fully grasp, it's something I don't fully understand. But this world is Satan's domain. This world is his domain. He has a position of authority in this world. Jesus described him as the prince of this world. And even in Luke chapter 3, it's Luke chapter 3 verses 5 through 7. This is whenever Jesus was being tempted and, and, and Satan himself was unleashing the full brunt of temptation upon Jesus. And in Luke chapter 3 verses 5 through 7, this is, how, this is what we're told. Um, the devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all of their authority. I will give you all of their splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone that I want to. And so if you worship me, it will all be yours. This is what Satan told Jesus. You can't Offer that unless it's yours. You can't offer that unless it's yours to offer. And so, what we're seeing is that we live on an earth that has been given to the devil. And we live on an earth that has been under the devil's horrific reign for way too long. And Romans chapter 8 verses 20 through 22 describes it this way. It says that all of creation, this world that we live in, is in bondage to the evil one. And it is groaning. All of creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth because of the rule of the enemy. So all of creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth because of the enemy's horrific rule. My wife, Carol, and I, we have four kids, four young kids, and I have had the privilege and the opportunity to to see every one of my kids born. And so I've been able to watch that. And so um, I have, you know, been in the room with my wife whenever she's been in labor. And so I've seen the beginning stages of labor and how, you know, that contraction hits. And it's like, like, that's, that's that hurts, you know? And then, then you know, she's been in labor for at least 12 hours with every one of our kids. And so, you know, at the beginning, it's like, oh, that that, that hurts, that's painful. And then it goes on, it's like, oh, it's really bad. And then towards the end of the labor, it's just, ah, oh, you know, just, just the pain and the groaning and the tears. And I've seen my wife cry. I've seen her just in absolute agony and I've seen her in pain. And, and I have just seen her at the end just be absolutely and totally and completely exhausted exhausted because of that pain and i have thought two things the first thing i have thought is wow my wife is absolutely amazing that she can do all this and the second thing i've thought is i am so glad i'm not a woman because there's no way no way that i want any part of that type of pain but but this this is what the bible describes as as what is happening to us This is what the Bible describes as happening to all of creation. That because of the enemy's rule, because of his horrific rule, that we are as in the pains of childbirth. And all of creation is groaning. And all of creation is crying out for relief. And all of creation is just completely exhausted because of the rule of Satan. But here in Revelation chapter 11, we see that relief has arrived. Here in Revelation chapter 11, we see that Satan may be a prince, but he ain't no king. We see that he may have some authority, but he ain't no king. And we see that there is a time that the kingdom of the world is going to become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and forever. And what I think is just awesome about this passage in Revelation chapter 11 is we see that it is the church, that it is the church in heaven that falls on their faces before god as that last trumpet is 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 sounded the church guess what that's you and me at some point if you are a follower of jesus christ you're going to be in heaven you may die but if you're a follower of jesus christ you're going to heaven you may not die but if you're a follower of jesus christ you're going to be raptured we're going to be in heaven. And so this part in Revelation chapter 11, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what you are going to do in heaven. You are going to fall on your faces and just say, thank you, God, that the enemy's rule is over because we have groaned under the enemy's rule. We have been in agony because of the enemy's rule. We have experienced the hurt, and we have experienced the pain, and we have experienced the destruction, and we have experienced all of the broken relationships and all of the physical and the sexual and the emotional abuse and all of the addictions and all of the death and all of the loneliness and the emptiness and all of the prejudice and all of the greed and all of the selfishness and all of the lies and all of the deceit and all of the suffering and all of the torment that the enemy has caused that we have lived under and that we have groaned under as if we were giving birth and there's going to be a time that we get to be in heaven and we get to say enough is enough God thank you that the enemy's rule is done that enough is enough because his horrific rule has ended and relief has come our deliverer is coming guys he is coming and he is bringing his great and his mighty power with him and he is going to reign forever and ever we win. We win. And we get an incredible picture of this again in Revelation chapter 12. And in Revelation chapter 12, this is, uh, again, we're, we're going to see just this beautiful picture of just heaven open up. And we get to see exactly what is happening in heaven right in the middle of the tribulation. And something that I just want to point out to you in Revelation chapter 12 is this chapter is, it's a little confusing. Um, it's full of past events and it's full of future events. And sometimes those past events and those future events are only separated by a, by a period. You know, and so we're seeing things happening in the past and going to the future, then jumping back to the past and all that kind of stuff. But then we're also gonna see that there's all sorts of imagery and all sorts of signs and all sorts of symbols. And and remember that this is a vision that the author John, the Apostle John, is is, is seeing. And so the signs and the images that he's seeing in his vision are all representing something. And so we're gonna try to just make some make some sense. Of, of all of that today, and so hopefully it'll, it'll make sense to us. But look in your Bibles at Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, and we'll just go ahead and start with, uh, with verse 1. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth." "'The dragon stood in front of the woman "'who was about to give birth "'so it might devour her child "'the moment that he was born. "'And she gave birth to a son, "'a male child who will rule all the nations "'with an iron scepter. "'And her child was snatched up to God "'and to his throne.' The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. What in the world is going on? You know, like here we're seeing we're seeing a, a pregnant woman running from a dragon and this dragon wants to eat her baby. It's like do do. You know, like this is like crazy. Crazy stuff that that is going on here. And so what I want you to know is is that I have you know, as I've been looking at this this week and trying to make sense of all this and figure it all out, I have been leaning on people a whole lot smarter than me as I've been studying and reading and listening and all that kind of stuff. But but I think that we can make sense of this. And I think that we can figure out what, what this all means. And so let's, let's break this apart and figure out who each of these characters are. So we're given, you know, uh, four kind of characters here. We're given a woman. A pregnant woman, we're given a male child, we're given a dragon, and then we're also given some stars that, that are talked about. And so, what do all of these things represent? Well, I believe, first of all, that the woman that is talked about is, is, the, is, is Israel. I believe that it's the nation of Israel. And Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 says, "...a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head." The reason I believe that represents the nation of Israel is because that very same terminology is used thousands of years earlier in Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. And it's the same terminology, a woman, a sun, a moon, and, and, and stars. It's, it's the same terminology, terminology that's used in Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. And what happened there was there was this guy named Joseph, and Joseph had a dream. Now, Joseph's dad was a guy by the name of Jacob. Jacob later changed his name to Israel. I don't know if you heard the names Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the the fathers of Israel, the patriarchs of Israel. And so Jacob, eventually his name was changed to Israel. Jacob had 12 sons. One of his sons was Joseph, then there were 11 other uh, sons. And those 12 sons made up the 12 tribes of Israel. So they began to make up the nation of Israel. Now in Genesis chapter 37 verse 9, Jacob, or Joseph has a dream. And in that dream, Jacob and his wife are referred to as the sun and the moon Joseph and his 11 brothers are referred to as stars. And so I I think we're seeing the same terminology here that kind of points to the woman in Revelation chapter 12 being represented by the nation of Israel. Uh, So I think that's what we're seeing. Then we see another sign, the red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Now, we see this one is a little bit easier because the dragon is actually described in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 12. And the dragon is said to be Satan. So that's a pretty easy one. That one is clear. Now, what's a little more confusing is that the dragon has seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. What does all that mean? Let me, let me just hopefully try to explain that to you. Six of those seven heads of the dragon... "...seem to represent six world empires from the past that have ruled over the nation of Israel." So six of those seven heads of the dragon seem to represent six world empires from the past that have ruled over the nation of Israel. What are those empires? There's the Assyrian, the Egyptian, Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek, and the Roman empires. And what seems to be the case is it seems as if Satan himself was somehow the force behind those empires. Uh, Remember what we read in in Luke chapter 3, that Satan can give his authority to anybody that he wants to. And so it seems as if that Satan somehow was the force behind those six empires. And then uh, there's, you, you can also read a little bit more about that in Revelation chapter 17 if you want to check that out on your own. Now the seventh head is the one world government or the final empire that the enemy is behind in the tribulation. So six of those uh, empires have happened in the past. That that seventh empire, that seventh head, is something that is going to happen in the future. And it represents the final world empire that the enemy is going to be behind. The ten horns represent that final world empire and the nations who are a part of it. So those nations that will make up that final world empire. And then the seven crowns appear to represent the devil and his authority in these world empires. And so the crowns here seem to represent authority. Remember, the devil does have some authority, and he always tries to set up his authority in opposition to God. That's just not going to work. God doesn't go for that very well. But what he tries to do is set up his authority in opposition to God. And and what we see, again, something I just think is really cool, cool, we see that the dragon, that the heads have seven, that they're wearing crowns. Looking at the original Greek language for that in this the the original greek word for crown that the dragon is wearing is is the word diadem and it represents kind of the crown that somebody with authority would wear and so yes the enemy does have a measure of authority but in revelation chapter 12 we also see that the woman is wearing a crown and guess what word greek word is used for the woman's crown it's the one we looked at earlier the stephanos guess which remember which one that is That's the winner's crown. So so the enemy here may have some authority, and he may even with that authority be able to cause some damage. But guess what? He never wears the winner's crown. That is only reserved for us. That is reserved for the followers of Jesus Christ. We are the ones that win. Only we get to wear the winner's crown. I just thought that was something that was really cool that that I discovered this week. Now, verse 4. Verse 4 tells us that the dragon swept um the dragon's tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. So he took a third of the stars out of the sky and he flung them to the earth. Now there's a lot of speculation about this and what this means, but I believe that it means is, is I believe that the stars here represent angels, and that this is a quick look in the past when we can look at Ezekiel chapter twenty eight and Isaiah chapter fourteen, when Lucifer fell from heaven and and just kind of that rebellion that, that is talked about for whatever reason against God and, and, and in that whenever he fell from heaven that's talked about in those chapters he was somehow able to deceive millions of angels if this is accurate, one third of them One third of the angels he was able to deceive and taking with him. And so they are now fallen angels that are with him that try to do his work and that fight against us in the spiritual battles that we can't see, but we can feel them. That's for sure. That's all that stuff that's going on. Then we have a child who is talked about. And I believe that the child represents Jesus. Uh, we see here in, in, in chapter 12, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment that he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. This is a very clear description of Jesus because if you look at Psalm chapter, no, Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, we'll see that in a prophecy in Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, the same terminology is used about how Jesus will rule. It says that he will rule with an iron scepter. And then also, the woman in here gives birth to a son, Jesus, a Jew, came from the nation of Israel— And then when it says that he was snatched up to God, I believe that this describes Jesus being taken to heaven after his death and and, and his resurrection. And so what we're seeing here is, is the sign of the child here is referring to Jesus. But what is really important to understand about all this, I know this gets a little confusing, but what's really important to understand about all this is ever since the beginning of time, Satan has been trying to stop God's plan. Ever since here... Think of Garden of Eden, all the way to probably somewhere in that area, Satan has been trying to stop God's plan. He has been trying to do everything that he could do to to attack God's people. He has always tried to destroy the Jewish people, or he has tried to destroy Jesus, or he has tried to destroy the work of Jesus. And so that's a picture of the dragon standing in front of the woman looking to devour her child. The enemy has attempted time and time and time again to try to destroy uh, Jesus or the work of Jesus. One of the clear, there's all sorts of examples of that throughout the Bible, but one of the clearest pictures happened right when Jesus was born. Right when Jesus was born, you, can, you may remember the story, but uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, the Magi, the wise men, come to King Herod and they say, Hey, we have, we're here to worship the king. We have seen the star in the east and we have come to worship him. And King Herod is like, Whoa, wait a minute, what king are you talking about? I'm the only king in these parts. And so he he gets really jealous and he thinks that there's this king that, that's happening. And so what he wants to do is he's like, well, there's not going to be any king but me. And so in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, we read that, that King Herod sends a decree that to kill every baby under the age of two. This, this happened right after Jesus was born. But Joseph and Mary were warned in a dream, and they were able to escape. And so all throughout history, the enemy has attempted to destroy God's plan, and all throughout history, he has failed to do it every single time. And then we look at verse 6. You guys doing all right? It's a lot of stuff, right? This is heavy. Okay, well, if we need to take a deep breath, we can. Let it out. Good, okay. All right, so here we go. That might have been more for me than for you. I don't know, but um, we're looking at verse 6 now. Verse 6, we see the woman Israel flees into the wilderness to a place that is prepared for her by God where she will be taken care of for 1,260 days. 1,260 days is three and a half years. So what we're looking at here is we've already seen the first part of the tribulation. Now we're there today. We're at the middle part. That's what we're studying. And this three and a half years of 1260 days is the second part of the tribulation. And so what is going to happen is that all of Satan's fury and all of his anger and all of his hatred towards God people will come to a climax during this second part of the tribulation because he unleashes everything he has on them. Unleashes everything he has on them. But God supernaturally protects them. And this is just an amazing picture of what God does. You can skip down to verse 14. Verse 14 in Revelation chapter 12. It says, The woman woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. That time, times, and half a time. Time is one year. Times is two years. Half a time, half year. Add that together, you get three and a half years. Just a crazy way of saying that. Anyway, um, so what we have is we have Israel is somehow led to the desert by God and is protected by them. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was like, how crazy is that? Because just, like, just going to the desert doesn't seem like it's going to protect somebody. Just going into a desert doesn't seem like it's going to protect anybody from the world's greatest army. Seriously, we have missiles that can find anybody. We have the ability to destroy anything. We have the capability to find anybody at any moment, at any place on on earth. And so how could simply going to a desert protect Israel from the greatest army that, that the world would know at that time? And then I was just thinking about that, and I was like, well, it's not like God hasn't done that before. You know, if you think about it, you guys remember the story of Exodus? The, the Israelites, the nation of Israel, escaping from Egypt and being in the desert, and God throughout that journey just protected them and watched over them in the desert. God has a history of protecting his people in the wilderness. I mean, God uh, in Exodus chapter 19 verses 4 uh verse 4, we're told this. This is what God told to Moses right before he received the 10 commandments. It says, "You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself." So, God has a history of carrying people on his wings and protecting them in the desert. Exodus chapter 14 talks about the Jewish people uh, being set free uh, from the nation of Egypt. And if you remember the 10 plagues and all that kind of stuff. And then after the 10th plague, Pharaoh's kind of finally like, just get out of here, just leave. And so the Israelites leave, but then Pharaoh changes his mind and then he sends his armies after him. And then in uh, Exodus chapter 14, verse 10, we read, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them and they were terrified and they cried out to the Lord and then you skip down to verse 13 and it says Moses answered the people do not be afraid stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the, that the Lord will bring you today the Egyptians you see today you will never see again and then I love this part of the verse it says the Lord will fight for you you only need to be still The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Then verse 19 says, Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind. The pillar of clouds also moved in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. This is what God does. He comes between us and the enemy. He surrounds us with his presence. He comes between us and the enemy who wants to destroy our lives. And anytime that the phrase wings is used in reference to God in the Bible, it is always, always refers to a shelter. It always refers to a place of protection. It always refers to, to a source of strength. And there's no greater example of that than in Psalm chapter 91. Why don't you just turn there with me? Psalm chapter 91 right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm chapter 91, verses 1 through 8. Just describe this beautifully. Psalm 91, verses 1 through 8. It says, Whoever dwells whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare And from deadly pestilence He will cover you with his what? With his feathers And under his what? Wings And under his wings you will find refuge His faithfulness His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrows that fly by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 by your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see The punishment of the wicked. This is what God does. He protects us. And there is no greater time that God is going to protect his people than right at the end of all time, right there in Revelation chapter 12. Because this is what God does. God is saying this. He is saying, I am going to fight for you. You only need to be still. He says, I will cover you with my feathers and under my wings, you will find refuge. My faithfulness will be your shield and your ramparts. We understand what a shield is. We know what that is. We may not understand what a rampart is, but a rampart just takes the protection of a shield to a whole nother level. A rampart is a military term for a protective barrier. And so the picture is, is this, is that you cannot be any closer to God than whenever you are under the shelter of his wings. That he is going to protect you, that he is going to watch over you, that he is going to keep you close. And it's this picture of God taking his child and completely engulfing him or her with his presence. And that is exactly what he is going to do in Revelation chapter 12. I'm telling you, when you show God your faith, he will show you his faithfulness. It's just what he does. When you show God your faith, he will show you his faithfulness. And in Revelation chapter 12, Israel finally says, all right, God, we are going to show you our faith because you're the only thing that we have left because life is caving in all around us. And when they do that, God shows them his faithfulness. God supernaturally protects his people. And now... As we're still in Revelation chapter 12, we have this meanwhile in heaven moment. So while all of this is going on on earth, we have this meanwhile in heaven kind of moment that's found in, uh, in verse 7. Let's go ahead and look at verse 7 of uh, Revelation chapter 12. It says, it says, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, "Now have come salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and." And night has been hurled down, and they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. This is fascinating to me. This is fascinating because we are getting a glimpse of the battle that we can't see, but we know is there because we can feel it. If you feel opposed in your life, it's because you are opposed. Exodus, or Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 talks about a, a, a that our battle is not against flesh and blood but it is it is against powers and authorities and in and, and the heavenly realms these dark forces in the heavenly realms, realms and they struggle against us and they oppose us and you have an enemy And that enemy has a plan for you. And that plan is this. He has a plan to do all he can to try to lead you astray, to keep you in bondage, to keep you deceived, and to keep the power of God from being active in your life. That is his plan for you. And so what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 12 is we're seeing these two angelic generals going to battle with each other and taking their armies and just fighting against each other. And we see the, we see Michael, the Bible refers to Michael as the archangel and he seems to be the one designated as the guardian of Israel. And the Bible also gives signs of the fact that there are certain angels or certain demons who are assigned to certain countries or certain empires. And you can look at Daniel chapter 10 and Daniel chapter 12 to get a a little bit of a glimpse of that. But what you have going on here is you have this heavenly battle that's going on. And I'll be honest, I don't understand all this. I don't understand what it's all gonna look like. And and there are a lot of smart, smart people who have different opinions of, of what this means. I'm just gonna tell you what I think it means and you can look at it on your own and you can try to figure out what you think it means. This is just what I think is going on here. I believe that this is a picture of a battle that signifies something that happened in the past but is finally being carried out in the future. So I believe that it's something that signifies what happened in the past at the cross and is going to be carried out in the future right at the midpoint of the tribulation. And it's sort of the idea of a courtroom. You know, in a courtroom, you can be pronounced guilty, but you may not receive your sentence immediately. And so it's kind of that, that same idea. <clears throat> and so what we find here is that Satan loses the battle and in essence, loses his position in heaven. Now, what position did, did Satan have? Verse 10 tells us that Satan is an accuser that he accuses us before God day and night. He accuses us. And the part of this battle that I believe is represented in the past, excuse me, is at the exact time of the cross. Whenever Jesus died on the cross, at the very moment of the crucifixion, there was a war that was being fought in the heavenly realms and Satan lost. Satan lost and he was stripped of his power to accuse us anymore as followers of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and the reason I believe that is this. Turn, uh, turn in your Bibles, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> Verses 13 through 15. So what we're seeing is Satan stripped of his power, his right to accuse at the cross, and then it's finally... S- carried out right there at the middle part of the tribulation. I believe that because of Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. It says this, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, or basically when you were stuck in your sin-dead life, that's what that means. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Remember that Satan has been trying to stop God's plan from the beginning of time. He's tried everything that he could do. And when he couldn't get rid of the Jewish people, and then when he couldn't stop Jesus from being born, he's like, well, okay, well, I'm just gonna kill Jesus. I'm just gonna get rid of him. And that was part of his plan. And when all else failed, he got Jesus on the cross. And just imagine all that's going on in the heavenly realms right there, the battles that are being fought, and everything that's happening. And, and Satan is finally like, This is my plan, and my plan is now to kill Jesus. And whenever Jesus is hanging on the cross, Satan is like, My plan has finally worked. I have failed throughout time, but my plan has now finally worked. Mike Tyson, <clears throat> Mike Tyson, at the highlight of his boxing career, was being interviewed, and he was asked about the importance of having a plan in a boxing match. How do you plan for a boxing match was kind of, kind of the question. And he said this. I, love, I just love what he said. He said, everyone has a plan till they get punched in the face. And I love that because you can come up with your plan, but when you get punched in the face, everything just goes out the window. Listen to this. Satan had a plan. But the cross was his punch in the face, man, because he has been scrambling ever since then. He thought that his plan had worked and he thought that he had won, but the cross just punched him right in the face. And what happened at the cross is that the cross became a public spectacle of the devil's own defeat. And he was disarmed of his power to accuse us. And so when you come to Jesus and when you trust him and when you were made alive in him, Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 says that every charge against us is canceled. The accusations of the enemy can no longer stick. And that's what it means in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, where it says they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb. Because the blood of the lamb means that the accusations don't stick anymore. Ask Pastor Dan, Pastor Dan to come up here. He's somewhere around here, I thought. There he is. He's on the other side. This is Pastor, Pastor Dan is our... Uh, Uh, new youth pastor on staff. He's doing awesome. So uh, it's great to have him on staff and just really enjoying him being here and stuff. But uh, that's Dan. And Dan's going to kind of represent, first of all, he's going to represent somebody that doesn't follow Jesus. So he's going to represent somebody that is not a follower of Jesus Christ. And so when the enemy makes an accusation before God against Dan, the accusation will stick. And so let's just throw out some accusations. Lust, it's going to stick. Bitter, it's going to stick. Greed, it's going to stick. There's pride, it's going to stick. Maybe he has a temper, he can't control it, that's going to stick. Maybe he's a big worrier, and that's going to stick. He's a Michigan fan, that sticks. Uh, Envy, that sticks. Drugs. Maybe he's done drugs. That's going to stick. Maybe he was a liar. That's going to stick. And so every time that the enemy makes an accusation against somebody that is not a follower of Jesus Christ, every accusation sticks. There's nothing to take those accusations away. They are all going to stick. But they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb. And so what we're going to see is that the blood of the lamb not only covers up, all of those accusations and not only covers up all of those sins and not only covers up everything, all of his past and not only covers that all up, but whenever the enemy goes to make an accusation against him now, it's not going to stick. Nothing sticks to the blood of the lamb. There's nothing that the enemy can do to take you away from God and it is all just going to fall off and they may be true. They may be true. But when the enemy makes the accusation, God's like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see anything. All I see is the blood of the lamb. Thanks, Dan. And uh, that is what it means that they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb. And then we're also told that not only that, but they triumphed over him by the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony and the word of their testimony is just the power of God in your life. The best the enemy can do to you is deceive you into believing you are not who God says you are. It's the best he's got. But your testimony is powerful. And the reason that it's powerful is because God is in it. And so whenever you, you, you have the power of God in your life, it changes things. People see that. And, and it's the power of God saying, I am who I am. And because I am who I am, you are who I say you are. It's God's faithfulness. Your testimony is not based on your faithfulness. It is based on God's. And when he says that you are somebody... That you are, you are this, you're my child, you are an overcomer, you are a victor, you are a winner. You are more than an overcomer. When God says that, it's true because of who God is. The best the enemy can do is to, is to deceive you into believing that's not true. But we overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. Let me tell you, the enemy may be a prince, but he is no king. And he knows that, that his time is short. And so he is coming at us with everything that he has. But every time that you resist him, he is defeated. Every time that you live out the power of your testimony, he is defeated. Every time that you believe truth instead of a lie, he is defeated. Every time that you tell someone what Jesus has done in your life, he is defeated. And you are not just a conqueror. You are, as Romans chapter 8 says you are more than that you're more than a conqueror you as a follower of jesus are the only one who gets to wear the victor's crown and the enemy may come at you and he may even cause some damage he may even hurt you but you win in the end let us get out of here believing that and living that out in our lives let me pray for us god Thank you so much that we can overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And God, I can't wait to sing this song right now just because it is such a declaration that no matter what is going on around us, no matter how crazy life is, no matter how many times we might have failed or whatever it is, our victory in your eyes is never in doubt. And the enemy gets us to doubt so much, God, but let us believe your truth. Let us believe what you tell us to be true and let us not give in to his lies. And God, I pray that we will believe that that the power that the enemy had has been stripped and that we win. I pray this all, in Jesus' name, amen.